0: And Then he serves Saul faithfully for many years. Um, yeah, he serves Saul faithfully for, for many years, even though he had been anointed by God to replace Saul. Eventually, Saul, in his jealousy, turns on David, and he is forced to live in hiding and exile. Even though David knows that he is the support of God and his followers, many in Israel remain loyal to Saul. These people speak evil about David and slander him. Now Saul's jealousy is sourced in the fact that he had fallen out of favor with God because he disobeyed him. In contrast to Saul, here was David, his young servant, who was faithful to God. And so God favored David, and while he was in charge of Saul's armies, he was successful in all of his campaigns. Because of this, the people of Israel began to attribute more glory to David than they did to Saul. So Saul hatches several schemes to try to kill David, even though he has done nothing wrong. A few of Saul's servants, and even members of his own house, see that David is innocent in all of this and help him escape when Saul's servants come to kill him. But it becomes too dangerous for David to remain in Saul's service, relying on other faithful servants to stay one step ahead of Saul's schemes. So he flees and lives in exile. Until Saul's death David lives in hiding, always having to move from place to place, because if he stayed in one place for too long, someone trying to curry favor with the king would tell him David was there, and Saul would send men to try to kill him. But in all of this, David does not fight back against Saul. He has soldiers with him, men of war whose loyalty to God trumps their loyalty to the present evil king. He could have gathered an army, attempted to storm Jerusalem, and claim the kingship for himself. It was rightfully his anyway. God had directed Samuel to anoint David as king, even before he struck down Goliath. He wouldn't even have had to storm Jerusalem. There was one incident where Saul was pursuing David, and David hid in a cave. And Saul came into that very same cave to relieve himself. And David snuck up and cut off a piece of his robe to show Saul that he had the opportunity to kill him. But held back. David did not seek to kill Saul because he was patient, trusting that the Lord would bring about justice at the appointed time. We in Cleveland have been reminded the hard way over the past week that just because you are attacked, it doesn't automatically justify you in fighting back. Eventually, though, David's time comes and he becomes king. And he is a good king who rules well comparatively but he's not a king without flaws. One really interesting thing you may notice reading Bible stories about famous men and women is that they are all sinners, and there's no attempt to hide it. It's not the kind of official political narrative you might hear from a great kingdom that claimed that their kings were perfect and did no wrong. And while the historians are telling a different story, our Bible heroes' sins are laid out plainly in the same pages that tell of their great deeds. Paul murdered Christians before becoming an apostle. Peter denied Jesus, and David was no different. Perhaps most famous of David's sins, but certainly not his only one, is his dealings with Bathsheba, the wife of one of his soldiers. One day in the spring, David stays back from the battle and observes Bathsheba bathing and lusts after her. He sends her to be brought to his palace where he commits adultery with her and she becomes pregnant. In an attempt to cover up what he has done, he calls Uriah, her husband, back from the battle and tries to get him to lie with Bathsheba so that he might believe that he is the father. When Uriah refuses to go back to his own house while his regiment is still on the battlefield, this plan fails. So David resorts to the only recourse, apparently, that he could think of, and he has Uriah murdered and takes Bathsheba as his own wife. To say that this was bad would be quite an understatement. Now, I choose to bring up these stories today as we prepare to study this psalm of David because it helps to remember that David was a complicated figure. He was a faithful servant of God, the boy who killed Goliath, the beginning of the messianic line, and a great king of Israel. And he was a wretched sinner. But God used both of these sides to show his glory. So let's take a look at the passage, which is Psalm 5. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out. For they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them. That those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with, a, with favor as with a shield. So in this psalm, David lays a set of requests before God. The ESV translate this as prepare a sacrifice in verse 3 with a footnote that it could also mean I direct my prayer to you. The NIV translates this as I lay my requests before you and wait expectantly. So David lays out a set of requests and waits expectantly. Confident that God will act. David has this confidence because at the heart of all of his requests is God's glory. And when we pray for God to be glorified, our prayers will be answered because God will always be glorified. That is the one thing that we can have complete, that is one thing that we can have complete confidence in. David's prayer also shows us three things about God. The first is that God establishes the right the righteous through his grace. The second is that God's glory is reflected in the righteous by their salvation. And the third is that God's glory is reflected in the unrighteous by their destruction. David begins his prayer by calling out to God and asking that he give ear to his words and hear his cry for help. Then David conveys his expectation that God will answer. I may be stretching this a bit here. But I find it interesting that the time of day of David's prayer is explicitly stated as the morning. It's almost as if David is saying, I pray this now in the morning, and now I will wait expectantly for action today. If not today, then eminently. It's clear that David lays this request out with a confidence that it will be answered. And that is quite a statement because it is a bold request. Thankfully, David elaborates for us on his boldness and his confidence. The word for in verse 4 shows, that, shows us that he is about to detail the reasons why he can confidently lay this request before God and wait expectantly. As David calls out to God, he begins by focusing on his holiness. Evil cannot dwell with God. He hates evildoers and abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful. David is reflecting on his own sin here. He acknowledges the truth that his sin separates him from God. We don't know the proximity of David's writing of this psalm to his dealings with Bathsheba, but ultimately it doesn't matter. David may have written this psalm when he was wrestling through his guilt for committing adultery and murder, or it could have been the day after he lied in front of the Philistine king, feigning madness so he might be spared by him. Now, it may seem crazy to compare these, these two. I mean, obviously, adultery and murder are worse than lying. But the truth is that both these things separate us from God, who is perfect in holiness. This is sometimes a hard truth in 20th century America, but the Bible is clear. You can try as hard as you can to be a good person, but this will not make you right before God. God's holiness is so perfect that any sin, no matter how seemingly small, separates us. This is such a countercultural message for us today, because we hear all the time about how if we just do our best to be a good person, everything will be fine. Just love other people as best you can, and everything will work out. While the origins of this mentality might come from a secular place, they have bled into religious life. More and more, churches have drifted from the true gospel of Jesus Christ to embrace what is essentially Christianity as self-help. Where you believe in God... To become a better person, and that that ultimately is the goal. Uh, Sarah and I have recently been watching the show Superstore, which is set in a Walmart like store where the manager is a caricature of a conservative Christian who's hilariously out of touch with his employees and, well, kind of everyone. Uh, In one episode, he gets into an argument with his assistant manager over whether people are inherently good, and they decide to settle their disagreement by offering all of their employees amnesty so that they can confess anything that they had done and gotten away with and not get in trouble. The resulting confessions are quite comical. The manager is so appalled, however, that he brings in his pastor to speak with his employees. During this interaction, the manager says something to the extent of, as a Christian, I believed you were all good people. And in what is probably a rare moment for Hollywood, the pastor corrects him and points out that Christians actually believe that everyone is a sinner. But the Bible is clear, and this psalm is clear, that this mentality that everyone is inherently good is a lie from the pit of hell. To be sure, if you tell someone that if they do their best to be good, or if they meet some minimum level of what constitutes goodness in your eyes, that God will accept them based on their efforts, this is a lie. It is a lie because it is a claim that God is not holy. For only an unholy and unjust God could look on a sinner and say, good enough. So in verses four through six, where David talks about all the things that God will not tolerate, he is focusing on God's holiness by contrasting it with the evil that a holy God rejects. God does not delight in wickedness because he is holy. Evil may not dwell with holiness. The boastful cannot stand before God because a sinner has nothing that they can boast of to a holy God. Holiness hates evil. Holiness abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful. A Separation from God is the basic human problem. We were created for God and have a need to be in communion with him. The separation caused by our sin leads to a spiritual depression because we need God. The separation between a holy God and his sinners is also inevitable because sin cannot be in God's presence. Such is the might and strength and perfection of God's holiness. And yet, in verse 7, David writes, But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. David is a sinner. God does not tolerate sin. Sin cannot be in the presence of God. Yet David will enter God's house. There are two literary components to note here. The first is the word but. This links this statement with the previous statements about God's holiness. David didn't just forget about what he had just said. He's not just moving on to a brand new topic. He he has both of these thoughts in mind at the same time. And the second is the modifying phrase through the abundance of your steadfast love. So, despite everything that David just said about how God is holy and he hates sin and evil cannot dwell with him in, the, in his presence, and David's acknowledgement that he is a sinner, he remains confident that he will enter God's house and be in his presence. He is confident that God will lead him in the righteousness of the Lord, even though he cannot claim to be righteous. This is brought about not by David, but by the abundance of God's steadfast love. So how can David be a sinner and enter into the house of a holy God? Did God look upon David's efforts and say, good enough? Well, surely not. To say that David will enter God's house through the abundance of his steadfast love is not to say that because God loved David so much, he lowered the bar for him. An exception was not made for David. To make such an exception would be unjust. It would be allowing evil to dwell with God. Instead of making an exception, David was transformed. He was made righteous by the blood of Jesus. This is what Paul means when he writes in Second Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When the time comes for David to enter the house of God, he will not be admitted based on the sum of his deeds. For if David were to be judged according to the sum of his deeds, the only option would be for him to be cast into hell, as is true for each one of us. But by the blood of Jesus, David will be washed and his sins cleansed. And what will remain will be the righteousness of God. It makes no difference that David lived before the time of Jesus. The Mosaic Law was given to prove this point, that we could not achieve righteousness on our own apart from the grace of God. And those faithful believers of the Old Testament still ultimately relied on the grace of God for their salvation. And when the day of judgment comes, it will be the righteousness of Jesus that God attributes to them. This is what Paul writes of in Galatians when he says that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham was not righteous because of his works. It was by grace through faith. Now, this is God's answer to the basic problem of the human condition. We are sinners, so we cannot dwell with God. To do so would violate the justness of his character. So God sent Jesus, his son, who knew no sin, to take on human form and die the death that we deserve to die. Jesus took our place on the cross so that the just wrath of God was satisfied. And instead of the punishment we deserve we are made righteous by the blood of Jesus. When reading this passage, you can almost sense David's relief when he turns his attention from his own sinfulness to God's steadfast love. And what a mind-blowing relief it must be to know that God has provided another way for you. Keller writes of the mental anguish we suffer when we live under a works-based system of salvation. He says, psychologically... Everyone who is seeking to save themselves by their own performance will experience a curse subjectively. At the very least, attempting to be saved by works will lead to profound anxiety and insecurity because you can never be sure that you are living up to your standards sufficiently, whatever they may be. I I recall a pastor from a church I used to go to who always used a metaphor of gathering bricks for works based righteousness. And in this metaphor, you, you received a certain amount of bricks every time you did something good and had a certain amount of bricks taken away every time you did something bad. He always seemed to have um, those like, red cardboard bricks that we used to play with as kids on stage as a prop. I, I always thought this was such a weird metaphor. Like Why are bricks something that's so desirable that I need to stockpile them? I mean, they're not even the best resource in Catan. Um. <laughs> But I remember it, so I guess it worked. The metaphor, though, it illustrates Keller's point about how we could never be sure where we stood, because we could never know how many bricks we got for a certain good deed, and we could never know how many bricks were taken away for bad deeds, nor could we ever know how many bricks we needed. It's kind of like afterlife points in the show The Good Place, where it's all just completely arbitrary. So we would spend our lives running around, trying to accumulate points and not lose too many. But we never really knew how many points we have, and we can never really have any idea how many points we need to win. If this were your system of salvation, how could you experience anything but anxiety? Peace would be completely impossible. And anxiety would turn to utter dread if you ever stumbled onto James 2.10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. So according to James, if you ever have broken a single point of God's law, it's game over, if this were your system of salvation. So what a great relief to read here in but one of the many places that extol the glory of God's grace. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. We all know who David was. We know the things he did. He was an evildoer. He spoke lies, he was deceitful. But Jesus was made to be sin, that is made to take on the punishment of sin, so that David, like all of us who have put our hope in the salvation, put our hope of salvation not in our own efforts, but in the blood of Jesus, could become the righteousness of God. I really love the contrast David gives us between all of the things that God hates in verses 4 to 6 and the fact in verse 7 that somehow David will be made right with God. So much power, mercy, and love hinges on that but in verse 7. It reminds me a lot of Ephesians 2, 1 through 7. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Not at all unlike what David describes in verses 4 to 6. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. About a year ago, I got to preach on a later passage from Ephesians, and one thing that I learned when looking at the broader context of Ephesians was that Paul uses a repetition of this phrasing, riches of his grace, riches of Christ, and riches of his glory. I'm not saying that the phrases are interchangeable, but I do believe they are linked in Paul's mind. And Paul talks also in Ephesians about how the universal church, the congregation of all redeemed people, serves the main purpose of displaying God's glory to all of creation. I think this really helps drive home what David is showing us in verses four to seven and why he can be confident that God will answer his prayer. Namely, that David can be confident that he he is uh, counted among the righteous because God has established the righteous through his grace, not by righteous living. And when the righteous pray for God's glory, it will be answered because God will be glorified. David then proceeds to the main supplication of his prayer. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. Here, David accurately points to God as a source of his righteousness. Only by God making his way straight before David can he follow it. What seems peculiar is the phrase, because of my enemies. David's enemies were constantly waiting for David to fall from grace so that they could claim vindication and show that they were right in opposing him. And especially when he was on the run from Saul. Um, Any slip-up that could be used to denigrate David publicly and bolster support for Saul would be exploited. So for God to continue to lead David in righteousness would be to vindicate David in front of his enemies. Keep in mind that this does not mean that David lived perfectly and so his enemies could not ever say anything against him. David was a human and did fall into sin. But he dealt with his sin with repentance. When he did sin, he humbled himself before God for forgiveness. So people that knew David's true character would not believe the attacks on his character by his enemies. They knew that David was counted among God's righteous. In this way, there's a clear parallel between David and Christians today. David faced enemies such as an evil king and his supporters looking for excuses to kill him. In America, we are fortunate enough not to face this kind of persecution. But Christians in some other countries do face this threat. Even in America, though, we have secular forces watching us, waiting for our leaders to fall so they can be humiliated on a national level, or on a more personal level, friends and family waiting to see us do something out of step with the faith we profess so that they can feel comforted waiting to level the accusation of hypocrisy against us. And in truth, they often don't have to wait for very long. But even with this malice that the unbelieving world watches Christians, there is opportunity here for God to be glorified. For when we sin, we will repent. And when we are sinned against, we will forgive. By living out our redemption, we will confound our accusers. Now, In the first seven verses, we see David make his prayer to God and then wait, and he illustrates the reason for this by contrasting his sin with God's mercy. The second half of Psalm follows the same pattern. He prays that God would lead him in his righteousness, which glorifies God, and then gives two contrasting supplications that further describe how God is glorified. First, David turns his focus to the enemies of God. David describes them as being without truth bent on spiritual destruction, and an open grave. And David's prayer for for God's enemies is that they be cast out, that they be destroyed. While there are similarities between the enemies described here and the characteristics that God hates in verses 4 through 6, there's also one key difference. Prayers like this one are generally understood to be in reference to people who will not repent and seek forgiveness but who continue on in stubborn and futile rebellion against God. Now, the individual actions and sins of someone who is under God's grace are not different than those of the people that David describes here. In fact, Paul quotes verse 9 in Romans 3.13 in building his argument that no one is righteous according to their own works. It is indeed only by the grace of God that David's plea to be cast out would not also apply to Christians. In verse 9... David describes a people who are not merely sinners in need of God's grace, but a people who have outright rejected God's grace. There is no truth in their mouth because they do not admit their sin. And we learn in 1 John 1, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Their inmost self is destruction because they refuse to lay down their arms against an enemy they can have no hope of defeating. Their mouths are an open grave because they spew lies that can only lead to death. David prays that God would make these rebels bear their own guilt in contrast to the redeemed sinner who will enter into God's house by the power of his steadfast love. He prays that they would fall by their own counsels. In other words, they would be destroyed by their own sinful desires. And because they have rebelled against God and because of the abundance of their transgressions that they refuse to repent, That they be cast out. In this last plea is a stark warning for rebel and Christian alike. For to be cast out of the people of God, these enemies must have been acting as if they were part of the people of God. There are most certainly people who claim to follow Christ whose devotion is false. Did not Jesus say, On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Interesting, isn't it, that the pretenders in this saying are trying to focus Jesus' attention on their own works? They must have somehow thought that they gathered enough bricks. But we have seen in our own time how churches have slid into apostasy replacing the good news of how God saves sinners with systems of regulations on how not to be a sinner. We see false teachers that offer what Dietrich Bonhoeffer labels cheap grace, a system that is all grace and no justice, all forgiveness, but no repentance. Paul writes in Romans 2.4, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to Repentance. I I don't want to make it sound like I'm saying that if you call yourself a Christian and sin that you are faking it. That's not what I'm saying at all. That's not what Paul is saying in Romans, and it's not what David is saying here. To be sure, Christ's church is a collection of sinners who will unfortunately but inevitably continue to sin. But like David in this psalm, who cries out to God with words of groaning that God would lead him in righteousness, lead him in the righteousness that is credited to, to him, a Christian hates his sin. A Christian who has experienced God's grace cannot help but feel a desire to live according to that righteousness, even if it is still beyond her grasp. So it is important to reflect on your life. If you have made the decision to follow Christ, but your attitude towards sin is not characterized by repentance, it is possible that you might still be rebelling against God. And a rebellion against the Lord of hosts is not one that can be won. And on that day of judgment, God's justice will be done to those who persisted in their rebellion. They will be forced to bear the weight of their own guilt, the weight that Jesus would have borne for them on the cross. This is not a pleasant thing to imagine, and it can be uncomfortable to talk about. But I can't stand before you today and preach a message about everyone going to heaven. Not with this text, and to be truthful, not with any text. It would be more pleasant, and it might make us all feel better but it would not be the truth. And more importantly, it would rob God of his glory. I said earlier that to try to preach a message that if you try real hard, God will count that as good enough was a lie and that it denied that God was just. In the same way, trying to offer up a gospel in which God's love overcomes everything and saves even those who reject him is a reformulation of that same lie. I think it's normal to wish this wasn't true. It's normal to see God's power and think that since none of us deserve salvation, why not ask God to save everyone, even those who have outright rejected his grace? But this request would issue forth from our sinful hearts. For it is a request that God act unjustly, and this cannot be done. God's justice is part of his glory. The two cannot be separated, and God's mercy does not negate his justice. Therefore, David's prayer that his enemies, who are also God's enemies, be cast out is consistent with his theme that God will be glorified. Now, as certain as we can be of God's justice, we can be equally certain that his mercy is guaranteed. David continues his prayer with a supplication that the redeemed will be vindicated, that all who take refuge in the Lord rejoice and will ever sing for joy that those who love God will exalt in him and that he spreads his protection over them. We have seen how Jesus has redeemed the lost by bearing the weight of their guilt and washing them pure in his blood. Now we see that the redeemed are precious to God and he will hold them fast. David prays that those who take refuge in the grace of God would ever sing for joy with God, God, would receive God's protection and would exalt in God. I think we've talked at length about the reasons why those who take refuge in God would rejoice and sing for joy. What I want to point out here is that David asks God that they would ever sing for joy. This suggests a state of permanent joyfulness. And since our joyfulness is rooted in our salvation, therefore permanent salvation. The grace offered by God is not a temporary righteousness that lasts only until we sin next at which point we need to go and get more grace. It is a permanent change in our state from sinner to righteous that jumpstarts the process of us becoming more righteous in our daily actions, which God will continue until the day of our glorification. And this state is fiercely protected by God. We see that God is glorified by the way that he establishes the righteous, by his grace, and his glory is reflected in the salvation of the righteous— Because it is the salvation of the undeserving brought about solely by the work of God. So David prays that God would, as he knows he will, spread his protection over the righteous. And it is a protection so strong that nothing can separate us. Consider Paul's words in Romans. After laying out in the previous chapters how God had redeemed us through grace, he turns his attention to how nothing can separate us from that grace. nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God has blessed the righteous primarily by making them righteous, which is more of a blessing than we had any right to ask for, and covers us with a shield, a shield so strong that no persecution or distress or tribulation can penetrate it. No power of man or angel or hell can cast it aside. Such is the power of God's glory that it shields us from all dangers. So we see that this psalm is ultimately about God's glory. David first expounds on how God has justified the righteous through his grace and how this displays the glory of God. He then moves on to ask God to lead him in righteousness so that he may be vindicated before his enemies, further displaying God's glory in the sanctification of the redeemed. David requested his enemies be cast out from God's presence, which displays the glory of God's justice, for these are also the enemies of God. And David prays for the protection of those who take refuge in God's grace, for our continued faithfulness through all obstacles displays God's glory. Because God is glorified in all things, he will be glorified in your life in one way or another. This psalm lays out the two options for how that may go. Take refuge in God's grace. Enter his house. Bow down before him in reverence and rejoice. Ever sing for joy under the protection of the Lord and exalt in him. Or rebel. Reject the riches of God's grace. Bear the weight of your own sins. Fall by your own counsels and be cast out. Let us rejoice that we have a God that establishes the righteous by his grace. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this word, this message from David. We thank you for what it shows us about you and how you will be glorified. Lord, we thank you that your glory is permanent and absolute. Lord, we thank you that you have established the righteous by your grace. This is this is more than anything that we could ever have asked for. More than anything that we have ever deserved, and, and we come humbly seeking only your grace it is the only thing that can save us. And, and we thank you, Lord. Christ, name we pray. Amen.